Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. Well, I guess, I guess I'm a little bit like a child on Christmas morning, I have to tell you. And the reason is that I've been looking forward to this particular series on property heavyweights for quite some time. In fact, some of the guests on the series joined me on uh, to record their sessions quite some time ago now. And so, to be fair, many of them have been waiting very patiently, I have to say, as we unfolded the Women in Property series uh, first before we could uh, start this new series on property heavyweight. So I really do appreciate their patience in waiting uh, to, to have their episodes shared. And in fact, today I'm joined by Ben Habib. And Ben founded and is CEO of First Property Group, which is an award-winning commercial property fund manager with operations in the United Kingdom and Central Europe. And uh, he's got absolutely immense experience. Uh, I could really listen to him all day, I have to tell you. In fact, I met up with him subsequent to our meeting as well. He was so generous with his advice and with his time, as you're about to find out. So uh, let's uh, hear his words of wisdom right now then. Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. Well, here we are on what is going to be the Property Heavyweight series on the Property Voice podcast. And um, I'm really thrilled to be joined today by Ben Habib, who is the CEO and founder of First Property Group. So first of all, Ben, hello. How are you? Very well indeed. Thank you, Richard. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well. I'm very well, thank you. I'm, I'm actually quite excited about this particular series because I think it's an opportunity to, to you know, it's a bit of a fly-on-the-wall experience, almost vicariously, about how people who have um, achieved great results and success in property have done it, and there's probably not one way. So I'm very fascinated with your story. I've uh, read a little bit around what you've done, but I'll tell you what would be really fascinating is if you wouldn't mind just walking through a little bit of your uh, experience and history and how you got to where you are today, if that would be okay. Sure, um, absolutely. Well, I I started life at Lehman Brothers back in the 80s, not, not as a property person, but in their uh, corporate finance department. And I learned everything I sort of knew about business really from Lehman um, with a very heavy financial bent to um to, you know, to my educational process. And I didn't, in fact, go into property until about 1994, having been at Lehman Brothers and then I was finance director of a, uh, of a Lloyd's reinsurance broker for a few years. And when I went into property, it was at a time when the market was just emerging from the early 90s recession. And finance was a key component of um, being able to practice property successfully. You know, it was very important to be able to raise debt against property, very important to understand the metrics um, which drove property returns and to marry up debt with property to, you know, get spectacular returns, which were absolutely necessary 
for someone starting out in business because when you've got very little capital of your own, you need spectacular returns to make it, you know, make the proposition capable of sustaining your lifestyle, sustaining you full stop. And so I started in property in 94 with that sort of um, backdrop. I didn't know it in 94, but um, I was very lucky because, you know, if if one were to trace back the current kind of super cycle we've had in property, it probably starts in about 1994. You know, we've had a tremendous run in the property market. I know we've had a couple of setbacks in 98, 2001, and then obviously the big setback in 2008. But um, actually, it's been a pretty good ride from 94 through to 2019, if you look at the period in its entirety. So I was really getting on to the ladder at, at what was a good time. And back in 94, um, when I started, it was possible to raise debt. It was possible to get pretty high LTVs against property assets. And I was able, therefore, to use the small amount of equity I had to really stretch myself. And of course, as I said, unknown to me, capital values were rising. And as I was leveraged and capital values rose, the rate of return I earned were really spectacular in the first few years. And so I had a good run between 94 and 98. Then there was the Southeast Asian setback. Um, Some of the developments I was doing became a bit sticky. And that was probably the first time in property where I'd experienced, you know, the ill effects and a necessary necessary education, but the ill effects of what happens when markets become illiquid. And then I set up First Property Group in the year 2000. And actually the initial aim with First Property Group was to use the internet to streamline the mechanism by which property is bought and sold. You might recall, I'm sure you will, that back in 2000, everyone and their dog was making money out of the internet. And um, I thought I'd get on the bandwagon. And I actually had, had a good proposition, but what I hadn't really factored into it was that the market simply wasn't deep or broad enough to sustain um, the business model, which was to charge a percentage of the value of the transactions that would go through the internet. And I, I, I couldn't really make, we sold properties through the internet, we had a perfectly viable system, but I couldn't make the business model work. So having set up First Property Group in the, in, in, in the year 2000, by about 2001, we were looking at you know, other ways to make money. And um, in 2001, we had 9-11. And 9-11 was a curiously important time um, for property. What happened after 9-11 was that central banks cut interest rates in response to the markets tanking. And it was the wrong time to have cut interest rates because actually the economies of, of Western Europe and the United States were perfectly fine. There was no reason to cut interest rates. But what it did create was the opportunity to borrow very cheaply and buy relatively high yielding property. And so the game that I'd been playing in the 90s became sort of super attractive after 9-11 as interest rates were cut. And I realized then that I should really be scaling up our activities, our ability to access this wonderful opportunity. We could buy property at 9% we were leveraging at about 4 or 5% and making 20, 25% per annum rates of return on our equity. 
which I'd never been able to do before that. And um, it was then that I thought I must go into fund management because to really scale up and take advantage of this market opportunity, I, I need a lot more cash than I've got. So we went out and we found some pools of capital. We started very small with about a million pounds worth of third party capital. And we put a few hundred grand of our own into it. And um, we did a few deals that went well. We did a bigger fund and that went well. And so by 04, we had some spectacular returns for our, for our fund investors. And I got my first institutional break in 05 when university superannuation scheme um, mandated first property group with a 50 million pound um, uh, contract to invest in the UK. And um, it was about in 05 when this wonderful ability to borrow cheaply against high yielding property more or less evaporated. And the reason it evaporated was because property values had risen so much on the back of these interest rate cuts and the boom that was taking place in Western capital markets. Um, the, the gap between interest rates and yields had gone. Um, so I went back to USS who'd just given me this 50 million pound mandate and asked them if they would broaden it to include Central and Eastern Europe, where we had found in Poland um, fantastically um, cheap property, uh, again, with very low borrowing costs associated with the leverage that we could source, uh, you, know, you know, producing these high rates of return again. And of course, back then, Poland had just joined the European Union. There was a lot of EU structural funding forecast to go into Poland. The economy was flying and was set fair. And so what we decided in 05 was to use the USS money, which was really my first institutional break, to invest in a completely new country um, and to sell out, in fact, of the United Kingdom. So we, between 05 and 07, we were selling properties in the UK. And it was that singular decision that stood First Property Group so well in the years following the onset of the credit crunch. Um, because, you know, as, as we all now know, United Kingdom had a terrible time in the credit crunch. Property values, when you take rental reductions into account, you know, more or less halved. And so we were very fortunate um, to have made that decision in 05 to get out of the UK where we couldn't see any value. And we were equally fortunate to buy in Poland because Poland, uh, hasn't gone into recession, didn't go into recession during the credit crunch. Um, we didn't have any delinquencies in our portfolio uh, of any material note. Um, our assets didn't fall in value in the same way that it is in the UK. And the very high yields that these assets produced cushioned any adversity in, in, in value. So we had a very good run during the credit crunch. And actually, when we look back now, Richard, so if I, if I were to take a line at the peak of the boom um, for my base measurement, our NAV has grown by around 25% per annum since 2007, which is an extraordinary statistic for a, a leveraged property company. Most leveraged property companies during the credit crunch had to raise money to survive, but we've actually not just increased our dividends throughout that period, we've had a spectacular rate of return um, uh, throughout the credit crunch years and you know, uh, mm -hmm. into 2019. And I think it all, it all boils down to 
ensuring that the gap between the yield on the property that we were buying and the cost of the debt associated with it was large, that that gap was large. And it was that large gap that protected us during the credit crunch and produced these returns. And then, of course, as the credit crunch subsided with the good track record we had, it was much easier for us to raise money. And we've now done a number of funds with pension funds in the UK, as well as Oxbridge Colleges um, and, uh, and wealth managers, as well as family offices, raising money not just for the UK, but also for Poland. And having started with a fund of about a million pounds back in 2001, 2002, we now have 750 million pounds of assets under management. That may be small beer by comparison to some of the bigger listed property companies, but that's all organic growth and all following one very simple formula, which is the pursuit of yield over, the, uh, uh, over borrowing costs. And that's the story in a nutshell, Richard. I hope that wasn't too, too long. <laughs> <laughs> do you know, do you, it wasn't too long. And I was very happy to let you go talk and take us through that bit. Um, of course, you know, I, it, it's about your story and what you went through. And I, I really appreciate you just picking on some of the highlights that have gone on there. And there's so many nuggets. I was jotting notes down. I've almost filled three of my little uh, A5 sheets of paper with what you said. <laughs> so it's fascinating. Um, I really want to come back to, and of course, you're, you're operating primarily in the commercial property sector, um, just to clarify. Correct, yeah, all, all commercial property. Yeah. All commercial. Uh, and we can get into what that is. That, is, it, is, it, is it literally offices or is it industrial retail, et cetera? Is it a mix? Or, um, yeah, how, it's how mostly you... offices with, with some retail. Okay. Um, very little industrial. We haven't done much industrial. Okay. So, um, I want to go back to a couple of things there because um, it really, yeah. I think it's going to help so much because obviously you've talked about your journey uh, and you're looking back. And as Steve Jobs says, we can only join the dots when we look back. Um, and, you know, so when you, you said you started out and you got a grounding in, in finance, obviously with Lehman, and um, you then moved into a reinsurance company. What made you step across into into property particularly and, and, and probably more so what made you step across into property in your own right and start your own business in property? What was the stimulus? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it was actually in joint venture with a friend mm -hmm. and who, who had been a property guy. And he approached me in 1994, early 94, and suggested that, you know, I should join him. And... Um, we started with a company literally that had no cash in it. It was just an off-the-shelf company. Mm -hmm. And um, we put some of our own cash in it, and we started from there. And you used the phrase um, a couple of times. Well, you used sort of a couple of phrases which boil down to the same thing. Um, one of them was fortunate, and you used the word lucky. And yeah, I... I'd like to sort of pick that up a little bit um, because I think, uh, by the way, not, not so many people always talk about luck or good fortune, but it does play a part. Yeah. But I don't think it's um, only good fortune and luck is, from my point of view, I think there's other things that come into that, like sound judgment, timing, etc. So do you want to talk us through, um, you know, were you, did you just get lucky breaks all the way or did you do something as well? No, I mean, I think the reason I'm keen not to... Um, bang my own drum to the exclusion of Lady Luck is that I think actually we're all um, 
you know, when the proverbial hits the fan, as it did in 2008, um, no matter how good an operator you were, unless you made some good strategic calls, as w which we did, I suppose, but unless you made some good strategic calls, no amount of good property investment and capability would, would hold a tsunami at bay. You know, when central bankers do things and economies change and markets change, and they often change overnight when they change, even the best people get wiped out, even the most capable people get wiped out. So you do need a bit of luck, I think, in life. Um, you know, and I think one of the bits of luck I've had, and you've had actually, Richard, is that we were both born in 1965. I think you were born, you're my age, aren't you? Yeah, I'm and, your age. So you know, that was, yeah, exactly. That, that was a fantastic time to be born. That was lucky. You know, we've had no major wars. We've had this debt fuel bubble um, that's, you know, coasted us along throughout our careers. Every house or flat we've bought has basically gone up in value. You know, we've been lucky from that perspective. So we've had some tailwinds that have seen us through our career. And um, I think the, 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 the benefit of those tailwinds um, shouldn't be lost in the self-aggrandizement that goes with, you know, trying to pinpoint the right decisions you made. And, you know, we did make some right decisions. We made some really good calls. But I think if the basic landscape hadn't been favorable, it would have been much more demanding for us. I mean, for example, I think that the youth coming up now have a much tougher job than we did. You know, I think they're relatively unlucky because they have, well, they've got two things going against them. The first is they've got relatively wealthy parents. You and I didn't have rel relatively wealthy parents. You know, we were brought up in recessionary times. We were taught to be frugal. We understood hardship. The, the youth of Great Britain today, by and large, have had a pretty easy time of it so far. But they're going to enter a world which is largely ex-growth, where interest rates are not going to produce, mass, you know, the benefit of leverage that we had is not going to produce the kind of returns for them as it did for us. And, you know, they've got a much harder struggle, I think, than we did. So, you know, luck plays a part <laughs> without wishing to labor the point too much. No, absolutely. But I think um, and I think there's a, a, a very good um, hint of some humility there in your answer. So um, that, that comes across. I think um, equally, though, to pick up perhaps on the other side of the coin, and you sort of touched on it a little bit there, which was some of the judgment calls that you've made. And I, I was looking actually, and you relayed actually in your in introduction back backstory there. But I was also looking at your website uh, on the first property group, and I think it's um, yeah, you call it the investment philosophy. Um, there's some key principles in there, and I just wanted to ponder on that a little bit because you yeah, made sure. some, you made some calls. <laughs> You know, some really, you know, sound calls, I think, have certainly turned out to be uh, one about investing for income, um, one about, you know, just you made some good timing judgments, didn't you, pre-2008 pre and subsequently. And um, just walk me through a little bit, if you don't mind, some of the principles uh, that underpin your investment philosophy. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I think I've always pursued income over the potential for capital gain. And the reason for that is that when you buy a commercial property, um, you know, it's, it's obvious what your income is. It's much easier to determine what your likely rate of return is, all other things being equal, because you can measure the income. You can compare that income to other uh, levels of income produced by similar buildings to determine whether it's over-rented or under-rented. 
you get you know you get really good steer on your likely rates of return from the income it's much more difficult to know where capital values are going to go mm-hmm. some people are prepared able and very good at calling cycles on on the on capital value but that's quite a difficult thing to do well so for example you know buying london property right now which is yielding around 3.5% per annum is something i would never do stamp duty alone is 5% so it would take a year and a half just to get the cost of my stamp duty back i can't see where the return is you know and it, even if properties in london went up a little bit in value they're already so high i can't see much of a return coming out of london so i would never buy stuff in london but i i'd much rather buy something on an 8% yield in leeds um you know where i know year in year out i'm going to get this 8% unless i've bought the wrong asset and there are ways to test whether or not your income is sustainable you know some pretty good ways and um so i'm i'm much more comfortable in the pursuit of yield and the other thing that that that, that is independent of my own view is um ipd or investment property data bank feedback which shows unequivocally that over the long term and we're long term investors in property over the long term 80 to 90% of your return comes from income it doesn't come from capital gain you know so it's all wonderful sitting at dinner t- dinner parties telling people how much money you've made on your flat but you know those are one off unpredictable gains um you're much more likely to have sustainable levels of profit if you target income rather than the pursuit of you know capital gain Yeah uh, and um I I saw some of the references that you just uh, made there and uh, we're talking about the commercial sector predominantly there or, or across the across all Yeah properties? principally yeah. no principally commercial it's yeah. much harder to get income out of resi property yeah you know because you know you get vacancies and you've got lower levels of yield and so on but um yeah principally commercial property I'm talking about And and just to you know understand how did you develop that source of thinking you know this this underlined your principles what were there any sort of um models that you follow or people that recommended you know that type of income first type of approach Yeah it was really again slightly by dint of my vintage you know because I came into the property market just after the credit crunch of the early 90s and banks back then wouldn't lend unless they had really good income cover and in negotiating with banks it became pretty clear to me that the only way to really make my living is to ensure that the property has a sufficient yield on it to justify the the the, the bank making its loan and that i needed to meet certain yardsticks so my interest cover ratio had to be at a certain level my total debt service cover ratio had to be at a certain level and and i also had to pay tax on the net income that i was making and after i've done all of that what kind of return have i got left is that sufficient to you know keep me um keep me sustained and so it was i i think it was coming out of that recession being acutely aware of the need for bank debt and the risks and i and i think it's also helpful being from a financial background because you're able to model what the risks are associated with losing income you know what happens if i do borrow this money and i lose some income how bad is it going to be you know and, and you, you you through sort of iterative an iterative process you establish what kind of level of yield you need to be able to be comfortable borrowing the money that you're borrowing 
and whether or not that income level is sustainable. And once you've done that a few times, it becomes ingrained in your philosophy. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, the, this is the safe way to buy property. And having learned that at you know, a relatively young age, that's what I stuck with. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of nodding away here. You can't see me, but I'm just nodding because, uh, uh, funny enough, I actually subscribe to a lot of this sort of thought process. Um, so one of the things I have as one of my key metrics um, is uh, is what I call debt coverage ratio. So, you know, how, by how much would interest rates need to rise if you haven't fixed them, that is, but how much would yeah. uh, they need to rise before you, your income is wiped out? Uh, and yeah, having, exactly. Do you have a kind of a, um, a KPI, a key performance indicator or metric about your the margin of safety between your income and your, you know, your debt repayments on total cost of financing or total cost of operations for that matter? Yeah, well, we look we look at every property investment um, for it on its own merits. And what we're looking to determine first of all, is how sustainable is the income? That's the first critical component of our analysis. Um, And then when we get comfortable about where the ongoing level of income is going to be, we then determine what level of debt, given current interest rate levels, the property could sustain. And then we look at our hedging strategy. You know, how much of the interest rate do we need to fix or cap? I used to buy caps, I'm now fixing. Mm-hmm. I used to, I, I came unstuck once buying a cap in a, in a uh, I, I'm sorry, I came unstuck once by uh, entering into a fix in an interest rate environment where interest rates were going down. And um, so I used to only buy caps, but with interest rates now down at the levels they're at, we pretty much fix. And our typical, typically what the, the way it works out is that we fix about 40 to 50% of our interest rate exposure. And that gives us a kind of stick in the ground, as it were, um, on ter- in terms of cost. You know, the, mm-hmm. and interest rate rises then can't affect you that much because you've already got a fix in place. And reductions in interest rates benefit you a little bit because you haven't fixed the entirety of your position. Mm-hmm. So we, we we tend to fix sort of 40 to 50 percent of our interest rate exposure, um, and the level of debt that we choose is determined by looking at the cost of funding, taking that into account versus the yield, the sustainable yield that we believe the property will produce. I mean, that's important, isn't it? I think um, it's good to get inside your your thinking a little bit there. So you're looking at the sustainability of the income first. So you don't just take it as red and it's going to happen forever. So I think you were talking about 8% yield in Leeds uh, today, but how sustainable is that likely to be going forward, which yeah. obviously suggests that you're, you know, looking at markets, you know, and, and trying to predict forward and the underlying demand for that particular property, et cetera. So that's kind of some of the stuff it, it points towards. But then, of course, uh, you. Absolutely. OK. And then, of course, you um, you then look at each property on its merit. So you don't just have a one size fits all, you know, X percent loan to value um, quite clearly. No, we, we, we look at every property on its merit. So, I mean, we're buying a Class A building in a regional city in, in Poland at the moment on a 9% yield. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're putting, a nine, we're putting a 65% loan to value loan in place against it. And that building, I mean, it's quite an extraordinary proposition. I, I haven't seen a, a deal like this for some time. Um, we're getting, we'll, we'll be able to, we'll be having double digit returns, mm-hmm. close to 20% per annum. Some of that return will be used to repay bank debt, to amortize the debt down. And that's very important, by the way, something we haven't discussed. But 
it's important as you while you own a property to defray your debt to some extent so that you're reducing your exposure to the bank. So we're going to use some of the 20% rate of return to, to, to amortize debt. Some of it has to go in paying tax. But we're going to be paying a dividend yield of 10% per annum on a prime class A office block, albeit in a secondary city in Poland. But it's, you know, it's the best location in the city. It's the best office block. And I've never seen that in my life. You couldn't begin to pay a 10% dividend yield in London. You, you couldn't buy a property anywhere close to 10%. It just wouldn't work. The leverage wouldn't even get you there. Nothing could produce the return. And so this is a kind of mouth-watering uh, um, target for us. And I know that I, I just know that that's a good deal because I haven't seen such high rates of return before. And we've checked the income levels. The income levels are comparable and correct for that kind of building in that location. You know, and tenant demand is strong and vacancy levels are low. You know, so we're, we're confident in the income. And that return just means we're buying well and it's a good deal and we should just get on and do it. Perfect. Is that is that in Krakow by any chance? No, it's not. It's another. We, oh, we have okay. bought stuff in Krakow. Well, this is something we haven't bought yet. We're, we've okay. just agreed terms to buy it. Yeah. Yeah, but, but it also, I mean, it's it's really interesting to get the, you know the way you, you your principles out really. And um, I think if anyone listening, you know, some good foundational stuff is coming out here. But I think just just to touch on that a minute, you you're in Poland and other parts of Central and Eastern Europe. But you 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 took that decision. At what point? Just before the uh, credit crunch, is that right? In 05, yeah. 05. I mean, in, by, the, by the end of 04, good secondary property in this country was yielding less than the cost of borrowing. So you were, you were actually burning cash to buy a property. And even though um, we didn't foresee the credit crunch, we didn't foresee everything collapsing. I was going to ask you if you did, to be honest. <laughs> no, we didn't. We didn't see the collapse. But what we knew was that we couldn't make money here. There was just no money to be made because the only way to make money was to rely on capital values growing. Yeah. Because uh, the income wasn't producing the return. It was costing us money to borrow. It was a net net cost because the yield wasn't high enough. And so we thought, well, that's a mugs game. You know, we're not doing that. So we started selling our UK assets and we thought, well, where, where are we going to go? You know, and we looked across Europe. France had similarly low yields. Germany had similarly low yields. And then we looked at Central and Eastern Europe and Poland had just joined the EU. Yields were high. Um, economy was growing at 5 or 6% per annum. Interest rates were low and everything just looked phenomenal. So we thought, yeah, well, let's buy stuff in Poland. Um, <laughs> And so even though we didn't see the credit crunch coming, actually, it was our inability to make money that drove us out of the UK that kept us safe when the credit crunch then did eventually hit. So there's a bit of a push and a pull effect in a way, isn't there? Um, it was a pull. I would never have left the UK if we'd had good, you know, benign market market here. Uh-huh. I was pushed out of the UK and then we looked at where we, where we would go. And as I mentioned in my preamble, you know, that was the time our first property group got its first big institutional break. Yeah. So it was very uncomfortable. On the one hand, we were being offered 50 million quid to invest in the UK and thinking, great, we can make big fees out of that. But on the other hand, I was thinking, blimey, I can't <laughs> invest it in the UK yeah. because, you know, hand on heart, I think everything's overvalued. Um, and actually, if you go back and you look at my CEO statement for the year to 31st March 2005, we're a public company, so it's all online. You look at my CEO statement for 31st March 2005, I say openly 
the market's overvalued. Mm-hmm. We didn't predict the credit crunch, but we knew it was wrong. The market was wrong. And so we took USS to Poland. I mean, um, talking about overvalued, and of course, we talk about our vintage earlier. Um, You've been in the in the business um, for at least what couple of cycles, depending on what you define a cycle. Um, Yeah, you know, so you've seen you've seen a lot, and do you see patterns as a result of that? I think I think you do see patterns. Um, I think post the last credit crunch, a lot of patterns have been broken because the credit crunch was so severe that the normal pattern of um, inflation, interest rates rise, interest rates go too high, you have an economic setback, markets collapse, interest rates are cut, and then you start the cycle again. That used to be the cycle. You know, the, the, the late 80s crash, the Southeast Asian crash, the cycle was interest rates being increased to fight inflation, resulting in an economic and market setback. Everything gets rebased and you start again. But this latest credit crunch is new in the way that it's hit the world because, in fact, interest rates were never that high. We just had massive leverage mm. and interest rates were cut <laughs> you know, before the credit crunch. Hit. But, and they had to go into negative territory mm. you know, before they could begin to cope with the adversity that had befallen us. And we had QE and we've had all the rest of it. And... Um, I don't want to get sidetracked, but I think it's been such a, it's, it's such a new paradigm that you can look back at previous cycles and try and learn some lessons and you know, use them to inform you about what the cycle might be like. But you do have to think from first principles and factor into your thinking that this is really extraordinary stuff through which the world has been. And actually, we're not out of it yet. You know, central banks um, uh, still own a lot of government debt. Um, government debt is still very high. Mm. Uh, corporates are reasonably well cashed up, but individuals are still relatively highly leveraged. Mm. Interest rates can't go up a lot because if they were to go up, the, the economies would just be absolutely clobbered. Um, so we're living in a really unusual environment where we've kind of the beast has been tamed, but the beast is still there. Mm. You know, the beast of debt is still out there, and um, which is why I think the youth coming up are going to have a much tougher job than we've had well yeah i agree and again you, you you've talked about first principles uh, you also talk about um having flexibility in mark in light of market changes so i i tend to use a phrase myself uh, which i call sort of fix and then flex <laughs> so um you probably know where i'm going but you know have, having a, a clear direction but then having the sort of agility uh, to be able to respond, but without the whole shiny yeah. penny syndrome, you know, taking you off on too many tangents and probably into ruinous areas. Would you agree? I think that is. Yeah, I do. I think that's critically important. And I mean, I can give you another example of first principles. You know, you, you can have your policies and your policies are very important, but then you must be prepared to set your policies aside if the market is telling you something else. So, for example, in in late 2012, the government mooted a change in planning legislation. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it, uh, the introduction uh, of development rights. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, for conversion of offices to resi. 
Now, up until then, conventional wisdom in the commercial property market was don't touch office blocks down the M4 or M3 corridor. They're a disaster. They're far too many 1980s, 1990s office blocks. No demand. We're in a, we're basically still in a credit crunch. Everything's moribund. Don't touch those assets. They're vacant. They're difficult to deal with. You've got void rates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you will never get planning for resi because the local authorities are very shy of letting go of employment use in their local boroughs. But we read about this mooted change in government policy and we thought, blimey, that's, that's seismic. Mm. You know, th this is really going to change the way you look at the value of an office block because if you can automatically convert it to resi, actually you're buying a quasi-residential property when you buy an office block. So we set all our principles aside in 2013 and we raised a 40 million pound fund to go and buy vacant office blocks and so no income, just buy vacant office blocks across the southeast of England. And we bought 32 million pounds worth of stuff and we sold it within a year and a half without any capex. We just bought it for 32, got the permitted development right and sold it for a net, net, net 56. Did you, so we did had a 98. Did you develop it out or did you just? Um, no. Oh, right. Didn't do anything with just it. The planning just, thing, I mean, yeah. Yeah, you know, and some of your listeners to this podcast will think well, that's kind of rapacious capitalism. But, <laughs> you know, we were responding. We actually, we, we did a service to the public because we got the plans done for the flats. We exposed the value that the flats would create. And we, you know, we created in a sense the concept before we sold the properties on. Um, but, you know, we bought from a, a moribund office owner. We revealed the value in the resi and then we sold to residential developers and we bought essentially we were buying stuff at 50 to 100 pounds a square foot and selling it 200 pounds a square foot roughly and then we you know net of our fees and everything else 32 million turned into 56 we made 6 million and our partners made made um 14 million um you know it was a good deal and <laughs> it was great so that was, that's just a good example of, you know, just be attuned to what's going on around you and park your policies when you need to. Yeah, I think that's really good to know that. And um, I wonder if those opportunities are still there. Probably not at the, the level. That not in the same way. Not yeah. in the same way. Everyone's on the, on the bandwagon now, yeah, I'm absolutely. afraid. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and we talk about first principles, but um, perhaps to broaden the topic just a little and talk about your own principles and values. You know, how, how do you operate you know, generally? I, I like to talk about values with people, particularly people who've uh, yeah. been around the block a couple of times, let's say, and have had some life experience. So what would you say yours are, key ones? Well, from, I mean, from a business perspective, you know, we're fund managers, and the, the key principle that I espouse in the office when I'm talking to my colleagues is never, ever buy a property which you're not prepared to put your own money into. In other words, ask yourself the question, is this a property you would have bought had it not been for the third party money that's going into it? And if the answer is no, I wouldn't have bought this using my own cash, well, for God's sake, don't buy it for a client. Yeah. You know, and, um, and, I, and that is a kind of key ethical principle that we use in the office to keep us honest. You know, we ask ourselves, we genuinely ask ourselves that question. Then the, then the other principle that we operate is that if there's anyone in the team who doesn't want to buy the property, anyone in the team, mm -hmm. we don't buy it. Okay. It doesn't matter if 
three out of four people want to buy it. We need unanimity to buy a property. We want to, all of us to feel comfortable with it. Um, and then the last kind of, I mean, we've got lots of principles, but the last key principle that we use is that as we're going through the due diligence process when we're buying a property, if we keep coming across hurdles, as opposed to the property becoming increasingly more attractive, if we keep coming across hurdles and having to find workarounds to justify still buying it, we walk away, we just drop the property because inevitably it's been, and this is one of the uh, bits of luck I have had in my life, is whenever I spotted a problem and not walked away, it's come back to haunt me. So, you know, (laughs) if you see a potential problem and it looks dangerous, walk away. Don't try and plaster over it in your mind or find some kind of workaround. You know, maybe you can do that once or twice, but, you know, just, it's risky so walk away yeah i talk a lot about sort of intuition and it's hard to put your finger on sometimes isn't it you just get a a sense or a feeling and i think your last principle points to that somewhat that you know it is yeah some clues yeah there's clues there's lots of problems it you know it's at the beginning it's largely going to stick with it although at the same time we we are problem solvers too so it's a balance isn't it so yeah it is a balance absolutely and you you mustn't become blinded you know there's certain issues which have nothing to do with the property but to do with the vendor which you need to circumnavigate somehow you know that's not the kind of problem to which i'm referring it's You know, if there's a planning problem or there's a functional problem with the roof or and or the HVAC is not working, you're having to put in more and more capex and, the, you know, you can't get the price reduced to reflect it and the returns are being squeezed. You know, then you should start yeah. thinking, oh, this is not so good. But if you're if you buy a, if you agree a price for a property, then you get into it and you go and you realize, oh, the renter actually could be five percent higher. And oh, this tenant wants more space and the vendor didn't know that because the vendor was not in touch with his, with his tenant base. Um, you know, I can make a bit more money there. I can make a bit more money there. So the picture gets better as you go through the due diligence process. That's the kind of property we want to buy. Very good, very good. Um, maybe start thinking about, well, two things. One, looking forward and then two, looking back. And I'll explain in a second what I'm, what I'm driving at there. The looking back, by the way, is perhaps some tips or advice for people coming through, but I'll, I'll park that. And if, if it's okay, obviously you're in, yeah, sure. if you're in the commercial sector and you would have seen some recent trends and new entrants into the sector, you know, the whole prop tech movement, then you've got people like WeWork with this sort of office space as a service type of concept. Um, you know, yeah. what, what are your thoughts, if you like, on, in terms of emerging trends and will it uh, impact your business and your, your um, thoughts to, to investing? Yeah, I mean, we watch all the trends, obviously, and one trend, for example, has been forever more sustainable, environmentally friendly buildings, etc. And bizarrely, that moves us away from buying those kind of buildings, because the trend has been for everyone to buy those buildings. So one trend we follow, for example, now is to buy buildings that are not that environmentally friendly or sustainable. And to buy them relatively cheaply then, because they're shunned by the market, go in and make them environmentally friendly and sustainable. Um, and it's not that expensive to do it. You, you, you may never be able to match a truly class A building because you won't have the infrastructure. You won't be able to put the infrastructure in place that they have. But you can make substantial improvements and add much more value to the property. So that's one trend, for example. 
-hmm. The other trend that is prevalent in the workplace is the kind of, you know, your workplace being like a second home. So um, breakout areas, table tennis tables, fancy cushions and, you know, free coffee and stuff like that. And obviously we just have to move to meet those trends as and when um, those trends establish themselves. Uh, I can't say as a landlord that I'm hugely pleased by the, by that particular trend because it's just, it's a cost and it doesn't allow us to make money. And we're in the business obviously of making money, but we are now doing much more of that in our buildings. So in Krakow Business Park, for example, um, the property to which you referred earlier, we're, we're, you know, we're building a sports ground, a football pitch, um, a barbecue area, um, uh, an, out, an outdoor gym. You know, you've probably seen them. I've never used them, but apparently they're quite good. You know, an outdoor gym. <laughs> um, um, we're introducing gas-fired um, gas-fired generators, which are much more environmentally friendly than using electricity in Poland, which is coal coal-produced. Um, we've redone the HVAC systems so that they're much less um, demanding in terms of electricity use and therefore more environmentally friendly and tick the boxes of tenants for whom that's important, um, you know, that kind of thing. So we are reacting to all that. We work, by the way, I think is a fundamentally flawed business model. You know, if you want any particular tips, um, I think we work will do quite well as a company for as long as it's got the billions of dollars that it's got in its balance sheet, but it's an inherently fundamentally flawed business model. So if there's anyone listening to this podcast that's thinking of buying a building tenanted by WeWork, uh-huh. already owns one, I'd be very, very suspect of it. I'm probably not allowed to say that. I don't know, it's not <laughs> That's my view. But. <laughs> we'll put the caveats in. Um, why do you think it's fundamentally flawed? Just to elaborate slightly. Well, they've taken this kind of um, co-working, friendly, breakout area, modern living slash office concept, I think too far. The, the, the balance of cost is against them mm. in the way that they've established their model. And if you look at them, if you look at their P&L and their balance sheet and so on, they're just burning cash. They're burning cash. And there will come a time when the reality of that will come home to roost with them. They've got the luxury at the moment of having captured the attention of some very deep pocketed institutional investors who've pumped in loads of cash, but eventually that cash goes and the market loses interest and faith in you. And, you know, you've got to remember, they're not a tech company. It's not like they're going to break some new barrier and having broken that barrier, it's then nirvana. They're basically just letting offices, you know, so um, I think I think they're going to come unstuck at some point. Yeah, interesting. I, we, I could probably dive a bit further into that, but let's, let's not, because I'm conscious of, of, of some of the time. But, Maybe what, before we actually started recording, if you're, <laughs> I started talking about some of the people I'm talking to in my circles at the moment who are perhaps 20 something, uh, that sort of age, but, you know, let's say a little bit younger than we are, Ben. But um, I, I'm really thinking about if you wind back the clock and you reflect, if you, if you like, on your journey, um, what sort of advice or tips might you have for someone at that sort of age who might be, you know, looking forward and, and projecting what they might be, you know, what direction they might like to take in the future. And maybe a follow up to that is, would you would you yourself have done anything differently, um, you know, had it been today? Yeah, I, there are a couple of things I would have done differently. I think 
Um, if you want to make good money for yourself and for shareholders uh, alike, I would have gone into fund management much earlier than I did. Um, I, I think, you know, to, to, to have labored away through the 90s, which is a fantastic period for capital value appreciation and rental growth, et cetera, to have labored away using, you know, a very limited pot of cash um, was a mistake. I should have used my limited pot of cash to marry up with other pots of cash and use my expertise and um, et cetera to, you know, magnify the rates of return possible through marrying up with third parties. Mm-hmm. And so I would have gone to the fund man, the, the co-investing fund management model much earlier yeah. if I could do my time again. Um, we didn't really hit on it till 2001, 2002 after 9-11. And then, you know, it takes a long time to establish your reputation because people don't trust you until you've got a good track record and it takes ages to get a track record. So start young, marry up with third party capital, be honest with yourself, you know, ask yourself the question, would you buy this property if it was only your cash that was being deployed Mm. and stick with that throughout your life. Um, Sacrifice a bit of growth. what what looks like you know sort of more immediate faster growth sacrifice that for the benefit of that principle mm. in the end it pays huge dividends um and what else would i say i'd say uh, i'd say the other thing i think that's important to talking to property people is steep yourself in financial knowledge yeah. a lot of property people i know are very good with property but it's really just a mechanism. Property is nothing other than an asset class through which you make money. And so I, the, the financial side of it is important. And it stood me in great good stead having started life at Lehman Brothers. I still use a lot of the principles that I was taught back in 87, 88. I still use them in business. Um, you know, the same approaches, the same uh, spreadsheets, the same kind of analysis. And, you know, steep yourself in that. Um, alongside your property knowledge. That's some really great advice. Um, and again, I found myself nodding along. Uh, I think we're sort of kindred spirits here, as you know, to some extent. You think, <laughs> I, I had a financial services background myself, uh, business to business. Um, the 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 uh, perhaps jump in because you you spotted the opportunities much sooner than I did. I didn't translate business to business financial services principles to my personal uh, financial services regime until much later in life. So I've been playing a little bit of catch up. Um, but I yeah. do agree with you that those principles really actually stood me in good stead also. So I think that's excellent, excellent advice. And one thing you said there, and we, you, we didn't really major on that, but you do have this sort of co-investing model, don't you? Yeah. And I, I think that's important too, because first of all, it keeps you honest, mm. you know, because you've got your own cash deployed. Second of all, it helps give third-party capital comfort because they can see that you are invested in it, not just getting fees out of it. And thirdly, it allows you to make superior rates of return. If you link yourself in your career entirely to fee income or just a salary, you're never going to really make a lot of money. You've got to be prepared to put your money where your mouth is. And if you're prepared, there are essentially two kinds of fund managers. There are people who became fund managers through the professional route, yeah. 
who went to university, did a, uh, did a degree in property, got an RICS, worked for Savills, Knight Frank, CBRE, whatever, went into property management. And they're very risk averse. They're management fee hungry. Um, and, you know, I think they're the sort of more policy driven fund managers. And then you've got people like me who actually had no formal training in property and came to it as a proprietor, having actually done some deals himself, you know, using his own cash, his or her her own cash. And they're a very different kind of breed. And I think I would always advise, if you're young enough to be able to do it, I would always advise to be of that latter breed. You know, put your money where your mouth is, get stuck in, play the game properly. Don't just be an advisor where you never lose. You know, your clients lose, you never lose, and you actually never make that much money either. Get stuck in and do it properly. Get wholly in. Roll your sleeves up and get stuck in. <laughs> so I sound like I'm giving kind of careers advice. There, well, no, no. no. <laughs> you know, well, actually, funny enough, because it's the opposite of careers advice in a way, because it's more about uh, being entrepreneurial, uh, thinking as, a, and as an investor. Uh, and I think the mindset is quite different to being, let's say, an employee, let's say, or a uh, a manager of a of a of somebody else's business. I think uh, you know once you've got genuine skin in the game, you know it is your own cash at risk. Then um, you know it, it does change your mindset. And I think the, the principles you referred to earlier. Um, well, you have no option because if your money's in it too, then you genuinely yeah, you've got to make it work. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess perhaps thinking uh, to draw a line uh, towards the end of our conversation, which I've really enjoyed, Ben. But I'm, I'm just thinking. Is is there a secret sauce behind what you've done? Or can, you know, and on the flip side of that, can anybody do it? I think anybody can do it. I, I do think, as I said at the outset, that we had a benign economic environment during our lifetime, you know, which made it easier. But I, I, I think anyone can do it. You've got to obviously have the now. You've got to have the application. You've got to be prepared to work all hours. You've got to be prepared to get under the bonnet of properties, dig deep, speak to tenants, check out planning histories, check out land registry, understand the vendor's psyche by looking at land registry, see how much he paid for the property, check out how much leverage he's got on whether he's straining or whether he's, you know, there's a, you've got to go to the, you know, money doesn't grow on trees, you've got to work hard, but um, um, I think anyone can do it. Anyone can, if they're prepared to put themselves out there and, you know, do the heavy lifting. I think anyone can do it. Well, that just seems like a very fitting way to uh, start to draw some conclusions. Uh, I'm very, you know, fascinated by the way you've shared today. Thank you so much, Ben, for that. Thank um, you. No, thank you very much. I think um, there was other things that perhaps would have liked to have driven us into, but just in the interest of time to make a nice little podcast episode, yeah. we'll probably draw a line there. But I think maybe to you've been so gracious, and I wonder if uh, you would like to signpost you know, perhaps um, your, your own organization or just anything really, if um, is your opportunity really to point to your website or any other areas of interest so that people could maybe reach out to you and see a bit more about you and what you do? Well, you're very kind. I mean, there is a lot on, on us on um, at the website, which is www.fprop.com. Um, and we've got case studies, I think, on the website and presentations. There's a great presentation I did called Thinking from First Principles. And if anyone wants to read that, um, that actually encapsulates everything I've said very briefly. Um, it's a great presentation. I highly recommend it. 
I also did a presentation in 2010 on how the property market works, and that I think is also on our website. Um, and that's always, I think, good sort of initial reading. Perfect. Well, I shall make sure those links, I'll dig them out myself and I'll make sure they're in our show notes or company uh, this when it goes to air. So um, I, I just want to say thanks so much, you know, Ben, it's been a pleasure talking to you and sharing with our audience so freely. I know you've got a busy schedule and you've carved out some time to do that with us today. Um, as I said, thank I'm you. very grateful. And uh, I wish you all the best and continued success. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. And to you, Richard, all the best. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, I hope you agree with me, but that was a really fascinating discussion that I had with Ben. I was really listening intently to everything he had to say because there were so many gems and um, words of wisdom, literally, that uh, came out of the conversation. I've highlighted a couple of things. Obviously, it was quite a long recording, so I'm just going to do a quick summary. Um, one of the key points, of course, was always to ensure that the gap between our yield return and our cost of debt is large. As you remember, uh, Ben is very much uh, an income investor and um, looks less at sort of uh, speculative capital growth and looks more about predictable income returns. So um, I guess, uh, yeah, that was, that was a key takeaway. In fact, we talked about the, uh, in, in his investment uh, philosophies and principles, and, and one of which, of course, what I just said, investing for income. Uh, and I think the other thing is to look at, he, was, he works in commercial property sector, and he said over the long term, 80 to 90% of return, total returns come from income and not capital. He cites some of the influences on his thought process of literally getting bank lending when he first started because the banks were dictating at that point in time high levels of interest cover, uh, high total debt service ratio, and of course, uh, he had to look, look at paying tax and what his net returns would be after tax. Well, it's not that dissimilar really to now, is it? Uh, obviously, post-credit crunch, things have tightened up. Uh, particularly if you invest in your own name now, you'll be, uh, as a high-rate taxpayer, you'll know about all about uh, interest uh, cover or, or other mortgage payments cover uh, being, being in the background there. So that was, that was good. And of course, he came from a financial background. And uh, he, talks, he talks later on in his interview about getting a really good understanding of financial principles uh, because, <clears throat> excuse me, they're going to stand in good stead as well. Um, th there were many of his K KPIs or key performance indicators that we could talk about, uh, one of which was looking at sustainability of the income, of course. And, and whilst Ben didn't foresee the financial crisis, he did spot a change in the landscape, which led to him changing. And I think that, you know, we talked about, uh, I use the term, I'm not sure I did in the interview, but certainly now, having strategic agility. In other words, well, I use the term fix and flex at the time, which is a bit more simple. Um, but sit, tell, reacting to what the market is telling you, even if you've got investment principles that you're working to. So there is this fix and flex. So fix them in place, but if, some, if the market's telling you something different, then do something different. And if you remember, he spotted an opportunity with permitted development rights. He spotted an opportunity to get higher income returns in uh, Central and Eastern Europe. And he took advantage of those and he made great gains as a result, or his business did. Talking about um, personal values, never buy a property you won't put your own money into. Uh, makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and of course, if a property, uh, I was talking to a client of mine actually yesterday, 
and she's had this property which um, has been just constantly causing problems for her. And it's just, it's not going to change. If, you know, that is the pattern, it's been set, it will continue. So probably the best thing to do is either provide for high maintenance or probably more likely to sell it on um, if the returns are not high enough to cover that. So yes, if you come across problems when you're buying a property and they can't be surmounted, um, then maybe it's best to give it a, give it a bit of a swerve. Um, some of the emerging trends were interesting, greater sustainable buildings and um, having more sort of amenity space generally in, 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 uh, in workplace environments. I thought that also stretched into things like co-living as well. So picks up very much on some of the thinking and themes I've been talking about recently. Wasn't that kind of about WeWork, uh, I think. But if you do look at it in the broader context of some of these, you know, um, sort of mega corporations like Uber, Airbnb are not necessarily making profits. Uh, WeWork is perhaps falling into that bracket. So who actually knows? But uh, Ben certainly doesn't think uh, it can continue to burn cash. Well, let's see on that one. I, I did promise a disclaimer. They were Ben's personal views and he wasn't given any sort of investment advice whatsoever. Um, some of the tips for emerging in, uh, property investors were really important uh, as well. Um, you know, would he have done anything different? Yeah, he said he'd get into fund management earlier. I think we can translate that into get into bigger deals and attract third-party investment. So it doesn't necessarily need to be a mega fund of several tens of millions of pounds. I think it's just attracting external investment. And I'm waking up to that myself, um, probably a bit late in the game, but uh, I tend, tend to agree with him on that particular front. Always put some of your own money in a deal because uh, it keeps you honest, um, you know, demonstrates um, you know, something good to your external investors as well. And also you can make better returns as a result. Returning to the financial knowledge thing, talked about steeping yourself in financial knowledge, understanding the principles. So read widely, understand these principles and they will stand you in good stead. And um, I guess that was it. I think just in conclusion, he talked about, you know, I asked, is there a secret source and can anybody do it? He said, yes, anybody can do it, which is obviously very, very encouraging. Uh, you have to have the nows, work at it, do your research and due diligence and do the heavy lifting, as he called it. But yes, anyone can indeed do it. So there's my quick recap, really. You can reach Ben um, or really find some of his articles, uh, www.fprop.com. Links are in the show notes, of course. He mentioned two in particular, thinking from first principles and how the property market works. And judging by our conversation, I suggest you have a look at those. I did actually dig them out at the time of our conversation. I do remember they were really good. But that's it then for this week. I hope you've enjoyed that introduction in this new series on property heavyweights. I would have loved to have reported who won the dinner for two uh, competition that I announced last week. But as far as I can tell, nobody entered. So I'm going to have dinner for two probably on my own. Uh, so there we go. It saved me a few quid, if nothing else. But uh, <laughs> maybe we'll try that sort of uh, guerrilla marketing tactic again in the future because you guys just don't like to play, do you? But there we go. If you want to talk about anything from today's show, uh, just talk about property investing more generally, you know you can always email me, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net, and I'd be more than happy to hear from you. And meanwhile, of course, the show notes can be found over our website, thepropertyvoice.net. But I guess all that's left to say is thank you very much for listening once again this week. And until next time on the Property Voice podcast, it's ciao, ciao.
Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.